A former editor of the Adventist Review, Myron Widmer, wrote this editorial a few years ago. Over breakfast one morning, a friend of mine looked straight in the eye and asked, What does it mean to you to be a Seventh-day Adventist? Not a normal breakfast question, would you say? And then he began to think, and he said this, The core of the movement is above and beyond the leaders or any structure and even beyond the lifestyle one chooses. We are involved in the work of helping to prepare a distinct, even peculiar people to meet Jesus Christ. But sometimes we act more like a church than a movement. A group of status quo lovers bound up in maintaining a massive organization and even local empires. Many members have lost this movement's original vision and purpose and defining message. And that's the reason for my subject tonight. What is a Seventh-day Adventist? What does it mean to carry that name? Now think back with me a little bit. At the cross of Jesus Christ, when Jesus paid the ultimate penalty for the sins of mankind, salvation was assured for anyone who chose to believe in Jesus Christ as their, as their Savior. No question. Salvation definite when Jesus died. Now, were there any Seventh-day Adventists standing around the cross that day? I mean, card-carrying Seventh-day Adventists, believing in the 2300 days and all of the doctrines of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Not one single one. Not one Adventist, and God could accomplish all that without you and me. Didn't need us at all. And salvation was assured for every human being who chose to believe in him. All right. So what did we come into existence for? Even 40 days later, when he ascended up to heaven and he began a new work of high priestly ministry, ministering the benefits of his sacrifice to all who would care to respond. Were there any Seventh-day Adventists on the day of Pentecost in that upper room? Not a single one. And yet he did that all by himself without any need for us at all. Ever since then, he's been ministering his blood in the heavenly sanctuary and there have been no Seventh-day Adventists around at all. We aren't quite as important as we might think, are we? Now, we've received these gifts from others and I just praise the Lord for these gifts transmitted down through groups of people down through the centuries and we can have that assurance of salvation and we can know that there's a mediator in the courts of heaven whenever we're in need of some extra help from God and we have received these gifts down through the centuries from others who have gone before us so what is the purpose and why did the Seventh-day Adventist Church come into existence if we aren't needed for that important work please turn to the book of Revelation with me Revelation chapter 14, verse 7, and we'll read a couple of very familiar verses tonight as we look at this subject. We could just as well repeat this one by memory, I think, without even reading it from Scripture. Revelation 14, 7. We're going to read some verses tonight without which there would be no Seventh-day Adventist church. Here is one. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. The hour of his judgment. Now, when did that begin? All right, someone was brave enough to say it. It began in 1844, the hour of God's judgment beginning. About when did the Seventh-day Adventist movement come into existence? about the year 1844. Something is coming together here, isn't it? Something about God's final work in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary and the bringing into existence of another movement that had never existed before in the history of this earth coming together at the same time. Could there be some connection? Could there be something that parallels here and a reason for existence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church? Now, the great controversy has been going on for a long time, and as I said this morning, Satan has challenged God at every step. He has said God's way isn't right, it isn't fair, and God isn't doing things the best way for his created beings. 
Where has Satan had his best success in carrying his arguments, in giving evidence for his arguments, in showing that his arguments have validity? Was it out in the Philistine world? Was it in the Edomites? Where was his best evidence gathered from? From his chosen people. That's where Satan gathered his best evidence that God's way doesn't work. It got very bad. This chosen people of God that were set apart to tell the world about the character of God were now copying what the nations around them were doing, even worshiping idols, setting up an idol and sacrificing their babies to that fiery idol. And of course, God had to show that this was not his way. And that precious people of his, that chosen nation, went into captivity for quite a while, separated from their temple and from their land, and it got very bad. How bad did it get? Let's read Daniel chapter 8, another one of these texts without which there would be no Seventh-day Adventist church. Daniel chapter 8, and we will begin with verse 13. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation, and uh, to give both the, the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? Complicated question. Let's simplify it. How long will Satan be winning the great controversy? How long will the nation be in captivity? How long will the temple be in ruins? How long will Satan trample your sanctuary underfoot? How long will God be on the losing end, apparently? Will it be forever? Will Satan win it? That's the question. How long will this go on? And I am very, very glad for the answer. I'm glad the question wasn't open-ended. And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, Then shall the sanctuary be planted. Daniel, be patient. Daniel, it's going to take a long time. This is a very complicated thing that God is doing. It can't be answered by a quick fix. No 30-minute television program and solve it. This has to be handled carefully and wisely. It'll go well beyond your lifetime. You will not see the end of it. We are talking about centuries into the future, Daniel, but be patient. The sanctuary, God's way of handling the sin problem will be vindicated. This word cleansed is a very important word. It means set right. It means justified. It means vindicated. It means cleansed. All those meanings contained in this Hebrew word. The sanctuary will be put right. God's way of handling sin will be put right. Satan's charges will be defeated. The victory will belong to the God of heaven. That's the answer that was given to Daniel in the most discouraging time that Israel had ever faced. And God was saying that there will be an answer. Now, we will all agree that Jesus Christ vindicated God's name, that he did the most marvelous job of telling the truth about God's character. But the question still remains, can sinful human beings actually come anywhere close to that? Listen carefully. All heaven is waiting to hear us vindicate God's law. All heaven is waiting to see if there's a people on earth that can tell the truth about God's law and his character. Review and Herald, April 16, 1901. You know, there's a fairly sizable movement, even within the Seventh-day Adventist Church, that says that there is nothing left to vindicate about God's law. That was all done at the cross. We are not, we don't have any part to play in this. But right here, all heaven is waiting to hear us vindicate God's law. And another statement. If there ever was a people in need of constantly increasing light from heaven, it is the people that in this time of peril God has called to be the depositaries of his holy law and to vindicate his character before the world. What were we called to do? We were given God's law, and we were called to vindicate his character. That's Testimonies, Volume 5, page 746. So I think there is something left 
for a people to do that God has called into existence. It wasn't all solved by what Jesus did at the cross or even when he went into the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. There were issues yet to be determined and God called a people into existence. Now, would you turn back to Revelation chapter 14 with me where we first started? There is one interesting thing that we sometimes overlook when we're reading this chapter. Before the three angels' messages fly in the midst of heaven, a group of people is described. The group of people before the messages. Chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. And we talked about that group called 144,000 this morning. Look at verse 5 with me. And in their mouth was found no guile. Guile means deceit or hypocrisy or fraud. None of that. For they are without fault before the throne of God. This special people, this sealed people, this people who lived through the time of the close of probation, the falling of the plagues and the final attacks of Satan, this group is the one that gives the message with power. Now we're giving it today and we have given it before for 150 years but isn't it a struggle to get people to hear it and to follow it what the day it will be when a group of people totally transformed by the power of God give the message and people say there's a difference there they are really different than the rest of the Christian world a people to give a message Ellen White says it this way in Desire of Ages 671 the honor of God the honor of Christ is involved in the perfection of the character of his people. Now catch that very carefully. It is not my honor that's at stake. It is not my abilities because I have no honor and I have no abilities in this area at all. I can accomplish nothing in the way of perfection. The only one that can accomplish perfection is God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it is God's honor at stake here. If he can't pull it off, his promises fail. If he can do it, he wins the great controversy. It's that simple. Whenever God makes a promise, the promise has to be fulfilled if God's honor is maintained. And the honor of God, the honor of Christ, are involved in the perfection of the character of his people. I think it's very significant that Ellen White calls this final movement the final atonement. The final part of the atoning process. All right. If we are called here to prove Satan a liar in the great controversy, how can that be done? Will it be done by the speakers standing at this platform and telling us each one what the gospel is and what the mission of Adventism is all about? Or will it happen this way? Desire of Ages, page 309. All who break God's commandments. How many of us does that include? Every single one. And not just two years ago. Is that correct? Maybe last week? All who break God's commandments are sustaining Satan's claims that the law is unjust and cannot be obeyed. Do we realize that? Because, you see, God says, for instance, turn the other cheek, and we say, I don't feel like that. And Satan says, why should you? Everybody will just walk over you. You'll be a milk toast. There's no honor in turning the other cheek. Stand up for yourself. Who do we believe? Who do we believe? Do we believe God, or we do, do we believe Satan? When he says, love your enemies... And when the soldier comes along and forces you to carry his pack for a mile, you at the end of the mile say, may I carry it for another mile? And Satan says, what is wrong with your head? You should hate this man. All the Jews hate the Romans, don't they? Time of Christ, why shouldn't you hate him as well? Who do you believe? Who do you sustain? Who do you stand up for? Who do you vindicate? Your actions will tell, won't they? Every time we sin, it's not really about whether I'm going to heaven or hell. 
It's about whether God or Satan wins the great controversy. And I am seconding Satan's claims when I sin knowingly against God's will and his law. Thus, she says, they second the deceptions of the great adversary and cast dishonor upon God. So when I lose my temper, I am casting a vote for Satan. When I exhibit a jealous spirit, I am casting a vote for Satan. And I am seconding Satan's claims, the law isn't fair, it's too hard, people with fallen natures, it doesn't fit them, it doesn't work for them, God is a tyrant. And then another one, Great Controversy, page 489. If those who hide and excuse their faults... Now you see we have step two. Step one is to sin. Step two is to do what? Hide your sin. Excuse your sin. Blame it on someone else. Cover it up. Do we remember Watergate? It was all about covering up, wasn't it? And to try to uncover the truth is very hard when people don't want to admit it. If those who hide and excuse their faults could see how Satan exults over them, how he taunts Christ and holy angels with their course, they would hasten to confess their sins and put them away. Notice she doesn't say, when you have a really guilty conscience and you feel really bad about what you've done and you're afraid you're going to hell, you'll hurry up and confess your sins and put them away. That is not the primary motivation here. We get on the wrong level of things, don't we? What is going to happen to me? Will I burn forever if I do this thing? And of course, that's what the whole Christian church has in mind. If those who hide and excuse their faults could see how Satan exults over them, listen, every one of us have watchers, and they're not all friendly watchers, especially Seventh-day Adventists have watchers. Those who claim to be the last generation preparing for translation, Satan has special agents assigned to watch them. What does he do? He looks for everything out of harmony with the will of God. Those messages are sent faster than any of our electronic messages can be sent to the commander-in-chief who throws them in the face of Jesus Christ and said, These are your people and this is your gospel. Look how powerless you are, God, to change your people. That's what sin is all about. That's why we should hasten to confess our sins and put them away, my friends. Because every time we sin, we are voting for Satan to continue killing babies in Africa by starvation. We are voting for Satan to continue to place children in homes where they are abused by their own parents. We are voting for that to continue. That's what sin is all about. It's not primarily about whether I go to heaven or hell. It is about the great controversy and Satan's challenge against the character of God. There's another one or two that I found that sometimes we don't think of because, you know, our eyes are so narrow, we see what's happening around us. We see the building, we see the people, we see the weather, and we don't see what's really important, do we? The angels and God's work and heaven and everything that matters. This one from Testimonies, Volume 2, page 171. If you could see the pure angels with their bright, searching eyes intently fixed upon you, watching to record how the Christian glorifies his master. That's what God's angels are watching for. They're not watching to catch you up. They're watching to see how you cast votes for God. That's what they want to know. The angels are on your side. They're not watching to see, oh, I got to tell God he made a mistake. That's not their burden. Others will take care of that. Their burden is to find out in what places you are casting your vote for God, how you vindicate God, or could you observe the exulting, sneering triumph of the evil angels as they trace out every crooked way and then quote scripture which is violated and compare the life with this scripture which you profess to follow but from which you swerve, you would be astonished and alarmed for yourselves. What do we need, folks? We need some eye-opening. We need to pray for that spirit that Elisha prayed for his servant on the walls of Dothan to see what's really out there, to see what is real and what we think is real. 
they quote scripture which is violated they know and then they say look at that life look at what you say God compare the two where's your power God where is it your gospel doesn't work and one more early writings page 268 if the eyes of such could be opened they would see Satan in hellish triumph exulting over them and laughing at the folly of those who accept his suggestions and enter his snares is that what we want to contribute to the laughter of Satan as he looks at those who say we are preparing for translation we need eye-opening my friends we need eye-opening to see what is really happening in our world and what it's all about and so I'm going to say that I believe that the vindication of God rather than the assurance of salvation is what Adventism was called into existence to accomplish the assurance of salvation was accomplished at the cross Adventism had no part to play in that that's a gift we receive from others God didn't need to call us into existence to get that done and yet that seems to be the big issue today doesn't it you ask anyone why are Ad what are Adventists needing most what is the greatest need of Seventh-day Adventists and inevitably you'll hear to have the assurance of salvation we must have a gospel that assures us of our salvation as I say that was done without us at all and we can be grateful and we can have that assurance but it wasn't why we were called into existence we were called into existence to vindicate God's name and to end Satan's challenges against the character of God I guess I'd put it this way the gospel that Christians have preached for centuries I'll just get very specific now the gospel that Billy Graham preaches to multiplied thousands and hundreds of thousands will save many souls for the kingdom of God but it will not bring us to the second coming of Jesus Christ it will not vindicate God's name because there is a denial of God's law contained within that preaching of the gospel that is not even realized and God cannot be vindicated by refusing his law and ignoring it and that only vindicates Satan even ignorantly it vindicates Satan there is a difference between a person being saved even in ignorance and vindicating God that can never be done by ignorance God will save so many people who have incomplete pictures of his character he will do that but he can never be vindicated by an incomplete picture of his character for example the reformers picture of God as a predestining God burning people in hellfire that can never vindicate God that only vindicates Satan there is a difference and Adventism was called into existence for this purpose of vindicating God's name which is a different mission than has ever been given to anybody in 6,000 years of human history this is unique this is special this is most holy place mission this is final atonement mission I'm going to share a few things now Gerhard Fondel is an associate director of the Biblical Research Institute of the General Conference and he wrote this a friend recently spent three weeks on an Adventist college campus during his visit he taught a class and spoke with scores of students his most disturbing finding he told me was that most had no concept of the Adventist church as anything more than one of scores of evangelical churches each church a student told him emphasized some aspect of truth the Pentecostals spiritual gifts the Baptists baptism by immersion the Adventists the Ten Commandments yes God has a church but it is scattered throughout all the churches a remnant church not as a denomination not as an institution and he said I'm glad our Adventist pioneers weren't alive to hear it there is indeed an identity crisis among us and not just on college campuses and they are not just among students speak and listen in churches around the world as I have and you'll hear members and even ministers asking who are we why are we here the sanctuary and the spirit of prophecy are the two issues most often mentioned do we have an identity crisis among us William Johnson editor of the review put it this way remnant has become a four-letter word in some Adventist circles even some pastors would be happy if we quietly laid it to rest it's time to rise in defense of this long-standing Adventist idea 
to abandon it will cast us adrift in a wash of relativism. Those Adventists who want to ditch the remnant concept need to think long and hard about what it means to be Adventist. We are not just one more denomination. We are a called and covenanted people, not because we are better than others, but because the Lord in his freedom simply gave us a job to do. Now more than ever is the hour for Adventists to know who we are and why we are here, and that means at heart one thing, the remnant. Appreciated that perspective. Came across this in a Sabbath school quarterly edited by Clifford Goldstein. Today, some among us even assert not only that we are not that different from other churches, but that we shouldn't be. After all, if we don't have something unique, something better to offer everyone else, why not be like everyone else? Despite those voices, many among us still believe, and rightly so, that God raised up the Seventh-day Adventist Church not because he wanted just another denomination, but because he has given us something different, something better to proclaim to the world. If he hadn't, what justification do we have for our existence? And what he has given us are crucial, distinctive truths, that make us Seventh-day Adventists, not Lutherans, not Episcopalians, not Baptists, not Methodists, but Adventists, Seventh-day Adventists. These teachings make up a distinct message that no one else is proclaiming. And because no one else is, we have to. That is, in fact, why we're here. Not too bad. Now, the second coming of Christ, believe it or not, is not possible any time that God wants it to happen. Isn't God sovereign? Can't he do what he wants? He has chosen not to do it that way. Elder Frizee, and some of you remember that name with fondness, especially some of the ones from over Wildwood direction, Elder Frizee had a most profound understanding of these issues, and this is what he wrote. Whether his people understood it or not, he could go to the cross and make it plain later. Isn't that what happened? Did his people understand? None of them, not even his disciples. So he explained it to them later on the way to Emmaus, etc. Then in 1844, whether anyone on earth understood it or not, he could move from the holy to the most holy place and explain it all later. Isn't that exactly what happened? But he can't close his work in the most holy place and explain it later, because later would be too late. Now we see why the bridegroom has tarried, why time has continued on since 1844. Jesus has slowed his pace that he may walk with us. Mercy of our God. This can't be like the cross when he went ahead without his church's understanding. This can't be like 1844 when he moved as the prophetic clock struck the hour. This time the clock will not strike until the church is ready because this is close of probation. There has never been a worldwide close of probation in the history of this earth. This is a different time. So God tried to come back to this earth shortly after 1844. That was his original plan. And if the Millerite movement would have held together through the great disappointment, that great spirit of primitive godliness that they had, and it would have carried it through into the full understanding of the three angels' messages, they would have gone home within ten years after 1844, Ellen White tells us. And then things went into a decline for 40 years. Interesting time span. And God sent his messengers again to prepare his people for translation. And he said, I am ready to move again. But again, there was quarreling and covering up and arguing, and God couldn't do what he wanted to do. And so we have gone into another delay, and this delay has lasted over a 100 years. And now we are asking the same questions identically that they were asking 100 years ago. In an old ministry magazine, Alfred Jorgensen wrote a few things that are worth our attention. First, he quoted the statement by Ellen White, It is the unbelief, the worldliness, unconsecration, and strife among the Lord's professed people that have kept us in this world of sin and sorrow so many years. That's why we sit here tonight, because of those four things. Remember, unbelief, worldliness, unconsecration, and strife. Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 69. 
Then he says, this is a profoundly important principle. The effectiveness of the Word of God is always limited by the measure of appropriating faith. The effectiveness of the Word of God is always limited by the faith by which we appropriate the promises of God. Are we aware that one of the greatest perils, one of the greatest dangers confronting the remnant church today is that it should become the victim of an illusion, the illusion that an academic knowledge of the Bible possesses a saving efficacy, even a knowledge of all the doctrines, and sharing those doctrines with others. That's what will save us. As long as people can hear orthodox truth divorced from life, they will attend and support churches and institutions without objection. The truth is a lovely song, becomes sweet by long and tender association. And since it asks nothing but a few dollars and offers good music, pleasant friendships, and a comfortable sense of well-being, it meets with no resistance from the faithful. Any man with fair pulpit gifts can get on with the average congregation if he just feeds them and lets them alone. Give them plenty of objective truth and never hint that they are wrong and should be set right and they will be content. On the other hand, the man who preaches truth and applies it to the lives of his hearers will feel the nails and the thorns. Are we content with the song of Adventist truth? Is it pleasing to our ears because those poor people out there don't know this beautiful truth? See how, how blessed we are? And do we realize that the problem is not out there? The problem is much closer to home. Now let's change the focus a bit. What was the purpose of Israel being called into existence as God's chosen people? To get as many Israelites saved in heaven as possible, right? That wasn't it? Wasn't the purpose of God calling Israel to let the world know by what God was doing in this place, in the center of that crossroads of the east, the character of God. Did they accomplish or fail in God's plan? We know the answer. That's a historical fact. Now, I want you to note one thing. When they were very close to total failure, they had failed and repented and failed and repented, and now they were coming close to the last time. God's mercy bears long, but there comes an end to that time. And now they were near the end of the final, final appeal, and Jesus Christ was making his appeal. Where did Christ spend most of his energy and his time at the very end of Jewish probationary history? Where did Jesus Christ spend most of his time? In evangelistic meetings up in Phoenicia? Or over in Greece? Or even over in Edom? Where did Jesus spend most of his time? trying to bring that chosen people back to a loyalty to God that they had rejected, back to repentance. He was trying to heal his people. He spent 99% of his time trying to heal his people. Yes, a few Greeks came to hear him. Yes, he went out of the country once or twice, but he spent most of his time in trying to heal the sin of his rebellious people. Now, what's the purpose of the Seventh-day Adventist Church? Why were we called into existence? To get as many Adventists saved as possible? Fourteen million? Will that do it? Maybe twenty. <laughs> or is there the same purpose for the Seventh-day Adventist Church as for Israel? To tell the world about the character of our God. And now the hard question, right? Are we succeeding or are we failing in the mission that has been handed to us in this generation? We're pretty good at doing polls, surveys. We like to do that. Kind of fun to do, isn't it? In 1980s, we did a poll reported on in the Adventist Review in 1986. They found that 70% of the respondents said they have heard or read about the church. 70%, not bad. Then the question was asked, what do you like best about us? 52% left that line blank. Another 21% answered it. Nothing in particular. 73% of the public who know about us can't think of anything good about us. Well, they tried it again. What do you like least about Adventists? 
Ah, now we get something. 51% gave no answer. 20% said they didn't dislike anything in particular. The editor said, the church's failure to project a sharp image concerns me. Is that the way to get the message about God to the world? How are we doing? Well, they tried it again. I, maybe they didn't like the first time around. They tried it in the 90s. This time, they found that slightly more than half of the Americans and Canadians surveyed have ever heard of our church. 70%, now a more, little more than half. And a marked increase in the number who misidentify us with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Jehovah's Witnesses. Not improving so well, is it? And in fact, younger adults do not recognize the name Seventh-day Adventist they found. And then they asked again the question, this 53%, they asked the same question, when you hear the name Seventh-day Adventist, what comes to mind? And the majority said nothing. And the ha half of those who did respond with something that came to mind were inaccurate or negative. They were also asked what contribution the Adventist church makes through community service. You know, what do we, we talk about ADRA a lot, don't we? And the very great things that we do for the world. And so this group was asked, what contribution do we make? Nine out of ten members of the general public said they hadn't a clue. What do we do? They don't know. Have no idea what Seventh-day Adventists are all about. Well... The answer isn't so good, is it? A, a former chairman of the Department of Church History, Daniel Voltaire, at the Seventh-day Adventist Seminary, related a visit he had with Martin Niemöller, a well-known Lutheran pastor who had spent time in Nazi concentration camps. I asked him, Dr. Walter said, what contribution can we Seventh-day Adventists make to the German community today? Niemöller thought a while and then said, I believe you have made a contribution. Some 75 years ago, you were the ones to make the Christian world aware of the end of all things. We were a little afraid of you. You had no temples, you worshipped in tents, and the people were upset. You seemed to be everywhere. Today, we are no longer afraid. You now have churches like everyone else. The teachings on the last things are taught by theologians who do not use the literal method as you once did. You do not seem to preach as you used to. Yes, you did make a contribution some 70 years ago, but no more. I really hope he's wrong, don't you? Wow. Hank Hanegraaff, have you heard of him? Hank Hanegraaff knows something about Seventh-day Adventists on the radio. And his reply about what he thought about Seventh-day Adventists. It depends on which Seventh-day Adventist you are talking about. The denomination has become so diverse that one group bears little resemblance to the next. That may be the most damning evaluation of all. Adventism is no longer a unified body with a unified message. You travel from one church to another church two blocks away and you hear things entirely different. And you know well, I don't have to tell you about that. Ellen White said, Desire of Ages, page 680, Christ designs that heaven's order, heaven's plan of government, heaven's divine harmony shall be represented in his church on earth, thus in his people he is glorified. How is God glorified? By the unity and harmony of his church on earth. Does that work well with what I just read? God's people have a great work to do. The world must see in the church of God true order, true discipline, true organization. Testimonies to Ministers, page 50. Through the church eventually will be made manifest the final and full display of the love of God to the world that is to be lightened with its glory. How will this be seen? Through the church. The glory of the love of God. Wow. Now, since our church is struggling a bit, since it may come out on the negative end of that question, are we succeeding or are we failing in the mission that has been given to us, what should we do? What should our response be? Remember the example of Jesus? Did Jesus 
first of all send his disciples out there in the world to get it all right within the Jewish church? Or did he send his message to that body to heal them and then they should go out and give that beautiful message to the world? Have we reversed that order a bit? Have we gotten the cart before the horse? Carts don't pull horses very well. Should we not take an example from Jesus Christ as to how to fix the problem? We are very upset in some circles when the word inreach is mentioned. And we are very happy when the word outreach is mentioned. Because that means we have something that we're giving to those poor people out there and they can come and join us. We have the message. It makes us feel good. But inreach means we've got some problems that we need to address. We've got some problems in our own hearts. We've got some problems in the way we run business in the church. And we've got some problems in the way we act. And we need to address those. And until we address those, our witness will be very muted out there in the world because they will say, what makes you any different than us? You've got about as many divorces in your church as we have in our church. Why are you any better? Why should I join your church? Where's the happiness? Where's the joy? Are we fixing the problem in the wrong place? That's the question. A conference president, former conference president, he's passed away since, Henry Bosch wrote it this way. Music is made up of three parts, melody, rhythm, and accompaniment. All three are essential but are not equal in importance. The melody should have the most prominent part and should not be overshadowed by the rhythm or the accompaniment. Pretty basic principle. And can you see why some music is a little annoying? The evangelization of the world by means of extensive preaching and teaching and printed material, the expenditure of large sums of money for campaigns, buildings, equipment, and travel, vital though all these are, do not in and of themselves fulfill the principal commission entrusted to the remnant church. These are not the melody. At the most, they are the accompaniment. Are we switching and getting it confused? The melody, which is to ring forth sketchily at first, but ever more clearly, is the song of victory over sin, the song of Moses and the Lamb, soaring higher and higher, closer and ever closer to the heavenly pattern, further and further away from the world, to the character, of, to, the, to the climactic height of the full and final display of his grace in vessels of clay but divested of all earthliness and testified unto by the declaration of the angel here is the patience of the saints here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus for the first time this testimony will be said of a whole community of saints is that the melody of the Adventist church victory victory over Satan's power and then he said, let Laodicea be warned. At one time, David fell victim to the magic influence of numbers, that Satan-inspired sport, which so slyly leads to pride and self-complacency, which so trickishly substitutes quantity for quality, mediocrity for true merit. The charm exerted by numbers, size, and quantity, if allowed to prevail, will fill Laodicea's pews with illegitimate children and swell her ranks with a mixed multitude which as of old could bring her march to a standstill at another Kadesh Barnea. God forbid that such a thing should happen. A conference president telling us that evangelism improperly done can destroy the Seventh-day Adventist church. And then he said... Unless Laodicea will submit to a candid self-examination and to an uncompromising self-discipline, there will descend upon her a tempest that will sift and shake her ranks and sweep to one side the whole of her household with its elaborate furnishings and costly equipment, clearing the stage for the Lord himself to take hold of the reins with an army of unidentified ones whose names and pictures may not be found in any register or church paper or book nor diffused from any desk. Or platform do we need to take a hard look at what God really wants from us Seventh-day Adventist George Knight wrote it this way in ministry magazine if I were the devil I would encourage the denomination to keep playing the numbers game the worst thing that ever happened to Adventism is when it learned to count 
We count members, churches, institutions, money, and everything else. While numbers have their proper place, they may have very little to do with the reality of a finished work. And then Ellen White. Now we find out what God said from his own voice. Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 260. The standard must not be placed so low that those who accept the truth shall transgress God's commandments while professing to obey them. And then she said, Better, far better, would it be to leave them in darkness until they could receive the truth in its purity. What an statement from the, from the voice of God through his servant. If we place the standard so low that we are disobeying God's commandments while having a placard up on our wall saying, These are what we believe it would be better to leave them in darkness because we are placing them on the broad road that leads to destruction. And we tell them that it's the narrow road and that is the utmost fraud to perpetrate. We need to think carefully about what we are doing and what our mission is and what God's purpose. So, summary. The purpose of this Seventh-day Adventist movement called into existence at the time of the investigative judgment and the final atonement is to vindicate God's name, prove Satan a liar, by preaching and living the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why I talk about the gospel. That's why I talk about the nature of sin and the nature of Christ and justification and sanctification and perfection because there is no way to vindicate God's name with a half-true gospel. We might get saved if we honestly believe it, but we cannot vindicate God's name and we cannot get to the end of the great controversy with half-truths. It just can't happen. So some of us take a risk of preaching very unpopular truths, truths which shut the doors to us in many, many circles because there is no half-gospel. There is no half-truth. It is either true or it is false. The secondary purpose of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is outreach, winning souls, carrying the gospel to the world, which flows out of the primary purpose for our existence. Outreach is not the cure to our sickness. Outreach must flow from the healing of that sickness. And then we will have power in our message and victory, and we will go home very soon. Let's turn to one more text in the Bible, Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel 33, which I believe speaks more to our time even than to Ezekiel's time. And we will begin reading at verse 7. So thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. Now what are we going to warn about? Verse 10. Therefore, O thou son of man, speak unto the house of Israel. Thus ye speak, saying, If our transgressions and our sins be upon us and we pine away in them, how should we then live? We're sinning all the time. What's the answer? Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now, who are the wicked here? It's not the Philistines. It is God's Israel. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Adventism? That's what God is saying. I don't think I am pushing God's word out of context. Why will ye die, he says. I have loved you, just as he said to Israel, I've taken you as a baby and I've carried you along and I've grown up, and now you're turning away from me and walking with other lovers, and you are consorting with those who don't know me. How can I give you up, God says. How can I give you up? Why will ye die? Why will ye die? Satan knows better than any of us 
that the only way he can continue his existence on his earth is to destroy this message and this movement. He knows that. He doesn't have to destroy the popular Christian churches. They will continue to preach their messages and he will continue to do his work on this earth just fine. He knows that. He knows the only way to his doom is if this body of people gets their message and their movement clear, their reason for existence. What do you think he's going to attack most? this body and this message that is going to be his primary focus in his final attempt to dethrone God from the universe how does he do that well he sets some traps for us he sets traps he hopes he'll trip us in one of the traps first trap is an easy one it's worldliness it's the love of the worldly things the pleasures of the world or even business as usual we've got a, ha a family to feed we've got an education to get we have got to concentrate on the things of this world or else we go down the drain we don't survive he gets us to concentrate on the things of the world even either by pleasure or by necessity and we become conformed to the world without even knowing it that's a big trap isn't it now there are some who realize that trap and are not going to go that way, are not going to go get sucked into the world, its pleasures or its burdens and responsibilities. They are going to take time to pray. They are going to take time to read the Word of God. They are going to take time to, to, to witness and to study God's Word and to be good Christian people. Their eyes are wide open to this trap, this first trap. So Satan says, I've got another one just for you, tailor-made. You love the Lord. You want to serve Him. You want to, be, you want to be in His kingdom. You want to be true Seventh-day Adventist. Why, here's a gospel designed just for you. All you have to do is believe. You don't have to worry. Jesus will take hold of the wheel. He'll drive you along. You just sit in the passenger seat. It's just fine. You are going to heaven. Tailor-made. A gospel for those who are sincere. Those who want to do God's will those who are faithful it sounds so right it sounds so good it sounds so plausible this is God he is love he is not going to cast us off does he walk away from you and you fall down why of course not and so here's a gospel that satisfies the need for assurance some have their eyes wide open to that some see that as a false gospel a gospel of it doesn't matter to you what, what, what you do. You just believe in what God did at the cross and it's all done. And they get very upset when they see this gospel penetrating deeply into our beloved Seventh-day Adventist church. They see it at high levels of the Seventh-day Adventist church. And they become frustrated they become very disturbed at seeing a false gospel running without objection any longer within God's remnant people. And they get angry. They get angry and they begin to point fingers and they begin to, 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 to relate stories about apostasy and they begin to print material showing how bad things are in the Seventh-day Adventist church and how God is close to, if not already, has rejected this body as his church. And they continue on in a holier-than-thou, angry, bitter spirit. That is just as deadly. Satan doesn't care if he gets us in the fires of fanaticism or the ice of indifference. He doesn't care a bit. He doesn't care if we have all the truth straight and we know the true gospel and we don't have any doubt about the nature of Christ. If we are using a vindictive, bitter spirit, he's got us. Just as much as if we are misled on the gospel. He's got us. Deadly trap. And then there's one more, the most deadly of them all. I don't know about you, but I don't like to be an extremist. Do you? Do you like to be a right-winger or a left-winger? Or neither? Isn't that phrases we use to try to distance ourselves from both of those? We talk about the right-wing and we talk about the left-wing, and of course none of us are either one of those. We are balanced. We are moderates. We walk the middle of the road. As someone has said, that white line in the middle of the road isn't such a safe place to walk sometimes. 
on the freeways. We want to avoid controversy. We don't want to be labeled as whatever the label is. So you know how to avoid that label? Just keep it shut. Don't say anything. Come to church, listen to the preacher, sing a song, put in an offering, and go home. And then you come to church again. And you sit and you listen to the preacher. And you don't cause any ripples. You smile at people and they smile at you. You're liked by everybody. And you go home. And you even talk to your neighbor over the back door fence about Jesus loves you. But you will not open your mouth about any matter that is in the least controversial. Because that will cause walls to come up. People will begin to categorize you. They will no longer like you as much. They may even forbid you to speak in a certain gathering. That's the most deadly trap of all because that's where most of us want to be. We want to be in the moderate crowd, the balanced crowd, the non-controversial crowd. And remember, I think I heard someone this morning say that the worst type of hostility to God is neutrality in a crisis. And of course that is from Ellen White too. The worst type of hostility to God is not in worldliness, is not even in a false gospel, is not even in bitterness, but in silence when God needs a voice. Those 7,000 didn't help Elijah very much. They were there, but they didn't help in the crisis. Yes, I know we have 7,000 today and more but where is the voice of Caleb and Joshua where is that voice where is the courage to speak in a crisis even when the stones are flying from your friends from your associates the most deadly trap of all and I will finish with a text that was read already today it is such a good text it is in Jeremiah Chapter 12, verse 5. Jeremiah 12, verse 5. If thou hast run with the footmen, and they have wearied thee, then how canst thou contend with horses? And if the land of peace, wherein thou trusted, they weary thee, then how wilt thou do in the swelling of Jordan? We are running only with the footmen today. That's all. It's pretty comfortable. We get a few slaps in the face. We might even get some career problems, but that's only footmen. What about when the horses come on the scene? What about when Satan turns loose his forces upon God's people? What about when the Jordan begins to swell? Praise God for problems in the day of peace. They are just getting us toughened up for the real battle that's coming up. Praise God when the opposition comes because the God is preparing us for real opposition that we haven't even dreamed how we could face. God has a way of preparing his soldiers if we're willing to be soldiers. We have to be willing to be soldiers. And then God will get us prepared if we will allow that to happen. He'll prepare us mentally with the right understanding of God's Word and He will prepare us emotionally. That may be harder. Emotionally to withstand the abuse that will come from those we trust and love when we are seen as, and I remember that statement from this morning, as straight-laced extremists. Straight-laced extremists. And we are called by names. Even we are called atheists because we side with those who believe that everyone should be free to choose in their own way. We will be called atheists in the sight of the world. May God help us to be Seventh-day Adventists. Called to a special time. Called for a special purpose. Called to be that generation that will prove God's truth to be right and the whole universe agreeing that it is time for Jesus to come. And then we go home. And we sort a few things out in the millennium.
But right now, our business is not to sort everything out. Our business is to loyally serve what God has told us to do. Let the, uns let, the, let the things that are not quite clear just stay up there for a while. We have enough clarity to follow that, we, that should take all our attention. Will you bow your head with me? Father in heaven, in this final generation, in this generation in which you are appealing to your people to finish once and for all your final work, I pray that you will find your Seventh-day Adventist followers ready to follow you. I pray that right here there may be a light kindled that will not be blown out by Satan's traps. I pray that the young people and the older ones here will no longer see each other as on opposite sides of a generation, but as friends and compatriots working together as soldiers in your army. And Lord, I pray that in this place there may be the truth of God and clearly clearly lived in the lives of those who believe it. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.